Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta, Yardena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masech Psachim, Daf Samach Bet, page 62. Okay, so we have some really interesting Gemara coming up coming up ahead here. I know Yardena, you're going to talk about that. Um, before we get there, I want to just do a little bit of follow-up. The first Amud really follows through on the discussion of yesterday's daf, um, specifically about intent and about the Korban Pesach, and who can eat from it. And we have a comparison here that I think becomes very valuable, um, although it's a little bit difficult in that we're not going to be able to go through the entirety of the discussion here. Namely, we have here a comparison between the Arel, the person who is not sar- sar- who is not circumcised, excuse me, and Tumantara, the impurity, ritual impurity. Uh, we want to see how this pans out and why it's relevant. So Marzutra, the son of Rav Mari, says to Ravina that we have this breita. It's discussed earlier on the daf. It's maybe even on the previous daf, right? Meaning there's a discussion of a breita that's already in play where, but, but here, what does it say, or what is the focus here? Because we have the phenomenon of the lack of some, somebody who is not circumcised, right? That person is going to disqualify the Korban Pesach. Now, how so? Well, let's say even you just said one person, or let's say you had a whole group of people who are Arielim, you know, the, the intent for this Korban Pesach, if the person's intent is for the Arielim, I mean, they can't eat from it. So the Korban Pesach is not a Korban Pesach. It is disqualified. What about Tuma? Well, if the people are Tame, for that matter, if the animal itself becomes Tame, but that's besides the point here, right? We have Tuma also becomes a disqualifier. It makes it impossible for this Korban, meaning Korbanot have to be offered Betara, with purity. So in this way, meaning both the Arel, both the uncircumcised person and somebody who is Tame can end up disqualifying the Korban just because they end up being the people who are ineligible for it. So now the Mishnah, I'm sorry, not the Mishnah, the Brite here, it goes on to say, we have a phenomenon of partial impurity. What that means, partial impurity, we're going to come back to in a, in a moment. But the question is, you know, is there such a thing as partial arelut, I guess, right? Meaning the idea that you could have a partial lack of circumcision, the same way there's such a phenomenon as a partial uh, impurity. So, you know, and, and to what extent does that partial impurity mean that it's the same you know, is it the same as a full impurity? Well, we need to understand a little bit better what this is all about. Um, okay, so the the Gemara here goes on. Hai tuma hechidami, this kind of tuma. We talk about partial impurity. What are we talking about? Ilema betumat gavre. If we're talking about the tuma of a person, right, meaning that which is attached to people. My lo asaba miksat tuma kechol tuma. So this is what happens if you have your whole group for the Korban Pesach, right? And now you've got four or five people, let's say, who are pure and four or five people who are impure. You know, then what happens? Do the impure people make the Korban Pesach impossible? You know, have they rendered it impure for the people who are pure who are there as well? Or is there such a thing here as you know, a partial tuma, which indeed allows that to to be, that allows the Korban Pesach to be 
to remain qualified and remains a Korban Pesach to be a Korban Pesach for those four or five people who are, in fact, a Horin. And that's what the Gemara ends up here saying. It wants to say. That's the, that's the effort. The impure do not uh, nullify the Korban for the people who are pure. The Gemara continues to say that you want to apply that to the the lack of circumcision, the people who are not circumcised, it's a little bit more complicated. So here we go. Gabe Arla Nami. Hello, Pasle. Ditnan. Lamulin Vlarilim. Kasher. You want to say, and in fact, right, there's a, a Mishnah, right, which says, in fact, if you have mulin, right, people who are circumcised, and Arilim, people who are not circumcised, together, then your korban could be kasher. What's the difference between this case of, you know, mixa tuma, partial tuma, where some of the people are tame and some of the people are not, and they say definitively, that's fine, that works, those kosher people can still eat their korban pesach, and in this case, where there's a lack of circumcision, meaning people who don't have circum, who are not circumcised, mixed together with people who are circumcised, why is this an unclear situation for the halacha? Why isn't it an obvious one? So the Gemara continues to say, Ella Batumad Basar. We're talking about so the Gemara goes on to say, Well, we're not maybe we're not really talking then about the Tuma Gavri. Maybe we're not really talking about the the impurity of the person. And then the because the real problem, of course, is that for the person who for the lack of circumcision person, meaning somebody who's not circumcised, presumably, right, there's a definition that that person nullifies the carbon pesach. Arelim cannot eat from the Korban Pesach. We spent a lot of time talking about how those who uh, cannot eat, you know, end up being a problem if the person has intent for those people who cannot eat. And does that render the Korban Pesach? It does it disqualify it? So the Gemara here goes on to say, Batuma Basar, that really that Brighton must really be talking about the impurity of the of the animal, of the of the meat itself. Right? And then what does it mean that it says that they didn't make partial tuma like complete tuma? So it says the Gemara here says if we have one of the limbs to become impure, right? So then what happens? We 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 take that limb that is impure, and we burn it, and the rest of the carbon is fine. Right, if it became impure at a certain later state of the process, I suppose, uh, which you can't really do with Arelim, right? You can't say, oh, you Arelim people will knock you out, and that will make it okay for the for the Korban, right? So it's part of why they decide, I mean, I, this is my understanding, that it's, it, it's not to Magavra. We're not talking about the people who are partaking of it. We're talking about the animal itself. And once you're there, then Arelim are no longer you know, really part of the story. Um, the Gemara goes on here, and it is, you know, it delves into each different kind of like, well, this kind of tuma versus that kind of tuma. And I, I think it's actually like interesting um, and fairly clear if we could actually know all of the references, right? Like to get there, I think, you know, in terms of a, a podcast of this kind, it would be a bit of a challenge um, if only because of our format, right? Um and also the fact is that if we spent all our time on the two mentara, then we'll never get to your data to your much more spicy Gemara. So I'm going to pause here uh, and and let's carry on. It, you know, it's this is one of the difficulties with Gemara because 
what it always wants to do is try to find pattern. And they're really trying to compare very different categories here. And I think they are sort of trying to conclude in the way, like, we just can't make this comparison at all in the end. Um, but the comparison, even at the outset, is difficult because the categories are so different. The, like the category of too much to somebody who's RL. I mean, one is an actual physical state, right? Like being uncircumcised. It's either you are or you aren't. And Tuma, I think, is such a, um, it's a spiritual status, I guess. Is that a good way to describe it? I don't know. Or it's a, it, you know, so I think that's why even at the, at the onset of the discussion, for me at least, this was a tremendously difficult passage of Gemara to get through. I'm going to move on to, I think, was honestly the funner part of the DAF. Um, I'm sorry, I gave, I gave it. We sometimes talk out and it's what I'm going to read now. It's probably obvious that both of us probably wanted to share this, um, but uh, I'll go ahead here. So, you know, while they're having this discussion about the Tuma and the Tara, um, well, sorry, no, they were talking about, they move on then again to a discussion about Rav Chista and whether he holds by the principle of Hoyo. Um, and so now they're going to discuss another discussion here uh, or they want to share a story. Rabbi Simlai atta lakame de Rabbi Yochanan. So Rabbi Simlai came before Rabbi Yochanan. So he said, please teach me about the book of Yochasin. So the book of Yochasin was some type of book that was specifically Tanaitic Midrash on Divrei Hayamim. And it's obviously it's been hidden to us. We don't know exactly what it is, right? And Amarle Mehechanat. So Rabbi Yochanan looks at him and he says, sort of like, you know, from where are you, right? A little bit, I think, asking, like, who are you? Amar me Lod. He says, I'm from Lod. Now, we know that Lod actually, in the times of the Tanayim, at least, had many, I believe I'm remembering correctly, it's where Rabbi Akiva's yeshiva was, but maybe many Tanayim lived in Lod. Vehechan Mutvach. And he says, okay, where do you live now, Rabbi Yochanan? The Nahardat. And he says, now I live in Nahardat. So realize some of this is, what's interesting to see is, again, I think part of the story is, is seeing the traveling that took place, right? Rabbi Simlai starts off in Eretz Yisrael. He ends up in Babel. Now he goes back to Eretz Yisrael to learn with a uh, Israeli, uh, well, you know, Eretz Yisrael, Amora, Rabbi Yochanan. Amar Leis, Rabbi Yochanan says to him, dunin lo liludin nahardain. He says, we don't teach this to people from Lod or people from Nahardat. So he's basically saying to Rabbi Simlai, you've got two counts against you. Where you're from isn't good, and where you ended up isn't good. Right? And certainly not because you're from Lod, and now you live in Nahardat. Right? So Rabbi Simlai keeps pressuring him, right? And he agrees finally. So Rabbi Simlai says to him, okay, so let's learn it over three months. In other words, Rabbi Simlai is willing to say, I know this will take a long time, so I'm willing to learn this with you over a long time. So Rabbi Yochanan takes a, like a handful of, you know, a clod of earth and throws it at him. So he says to Rabbi Simlai, he goes, now Buria, who was the ripe wife of Rabbi Meir and the daughter of Rabbi Yochanan ben uh, Trajon, and she could learn 300 rulings a day, 
right, from 300 different masters. In other words, she didn't need to sit with one teacher. She could learn lots of different things from lots of different people. And even so, right, Shanin, sorry. Nevertheless, she still could not fulfill her obligation in three years, right? Even she couldn't finish learning this work in three years. And this was sort of the best student. Do you say you want to finish it in three months? Now, um, I always wonder a little bit. This Gemara is often cited as sort of talking about, um, you know, how brilliant Buria was. There's a small piece of me, and I'm just going to go out and say it. It's interesting that he makes the comparison to a woman. And is that in a way almost a little bit more of a dig? Like, let's be honest. We know that it was not common for women to be learning at this time. And in fact, was controversial. You know, is this even a little bit of a dig at Rabbi Simlai where he's saying, like, even the most learned woman, you're not even on that level. I, I, I don't know, Anne. What do you think about that? It, it just it's a little bit of the vibe I get from this story even though this often is used as, yeah. oh, look how learned Buria was. But in a way, I feel like Rabbi Yochanan is maybe teaching Buria a little bit disrespectfully also. Um, I think that's fair. I feel like to be conclusive about it, we want to check all the other parallel totally. kinds of comments that get me, you know, kind of thing. Like, meaning on the off-the-cuff version, I think there is something to that, you know, on the other hand, she is well regarded. There is halacha that is paskin after her opinion without giving her name, right? Like, so the view, the psak shouldn't be um, besmirched by, you know, by its connection to a woman, or maybe they just didn't want to honor her. I'm not sure, right? But meaning, so she definitely appears, she definitely appears in cases where there is due respect given. Right. So, I guess this to me was one of those examples, like the passage piece of, you know, that she learned 300 rulings from 300 masters. That's a very famous part of Gemara. But once I learned it within the actual context, and that's why we always need to look at context, I was a little like, huh, maybe this isn't as complimentary <laughs> as like we always use this Gemara. That's all I want to say about that. Yeah, so I think I think that the the tzlil, the, what's that word? The resonance, I think you're, yeah, so, I, I agree. Okay, so anyhow, so that that's, you know, the interesting piece of the story. Now the Gemara is going to go on to like, well, how does this relate to what we've been talking about on this time? He shuck of the Azil, right? When Rabbi Simlai was leaving, Amar Leh, he says to Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi, ma bein li shmo, vishalo li shmo. So he basically is asking him, my teacher, right? What's the difference between a Pesach that's offered li shmo for its own sake or one that's offered not for its own sake? La'ochla vishalo la'ochla. Or Pesach that was offered for those who are able to eat it and for those who are not able to eat it, okay? The question basically being, Right? Could it be? Is why is it invalid? Right? We know that in that first case of lishmo v'shalo lishmo, we say that pesach is pasul. But on the second case of lochlav v'shalo lochlav, we know that it's actually kasher. Amar leis Rabbi Yochanan answers him holil v'tsurba me rabbananat. Right? Since you're a rabbinical student, basically tava imalach. Now I will come and tell you the differences. So now he's willing to teach him lishmo v'shalo lishmo. Right? So he's going to make these four different distinctions here, which were a little difficult to follow here. When we talk about this categories for its sake and not for its sake, pisulo begufo. When we talk about the Korban Pesach being pasul, it's because it is like actually pasul in its goof itself. In other words, once you introduce a shaloli shmo connected to the Pesach, like in and itself as a Korban is no longer pasul. Lo achlav v'shalol ain't pisulo begufo. 
right? But when you talk about it not being valid because you made a category of those who can eat it and those who can't, there's nothing invalid about the sacrifice itself. It's just attached to the people who can actually eat it. In the case of for its sake and for not its own sake, it's you can't actually identify the prohibited portion, right? In other words, you can't say like, this was the part that was the Korban Pesach of the animal, and this was the part that was for the Shlomim, right? Whatever that, you know, whatever the lowly Shmo was. But in the case of the eating one, right, those who can eat and who are unable to eat, you could identify the prohibited portion, right? And this was sort of suggested a little bit with the tummy beforehand, right? You could, right, you could basically point to it and say, well, this would have been the portion for someone who could eat, and this would have been the portion of the, the korban that's for someone who could not eat. When it comes to the, the for its sake and not for its own sake, this is relevant for all four avodot, right? At any point in time, that intention of any of the four avodot or having the mistaken intention could invalidate it. But the idea with the, the those who can eat or those who cannot eat, it doesn't actually pertain to all four. It actually only has to do, it's only important when it comes to shechita, to, to the first avoda. Sorry, I read that part. Right? For the intention one, for its sake or not for its sake, this concept of this applies whether it's a community sacrifice or whether there's an individual sacrifice. So in other words, the concept of not necessarily as it pertains to a Korban Pesach. But the idea of, you know, those who can eat it or could not eat it does not, you know, does not apply to community sacrifice as it only applies to an individual one. So he sort of goes through Rabbi Yochanan. And again, what I liked about this passage was, I think it enumerates very well why the Korban Pesach itself seems to consistently, you know, be treated differently than some of the other korbanot. And also even within itself, different things will qualify, will invalidate it and different things will validate it. In other words, if different things get messed up along the process of giving the korban Pesach itself. Um, then Ravashi comes and says, Ravashi Amar Pesuro right? These points about the invalidation being about itself that you can't like, because you can't, you know, say like this part of the body, you can't identify it to a particular portion, right? This is actually one type of thing. Right? Because for what reason would you say it's invalidating the sacrifice itself? Right? Because you can't identify uh, the actual uh, prohibited um, part. Um, so, you know, so, so I thought this was a very interesting passage as well, the second part to the story, um, because I think Rabbi Yochanan very masterfully sort of goes through and explains all these different, it kind of brought together a lot of the concepts that we've been talking about in this last few dapim and brings it together in this one singular passage. So there's one thing you've said here of the, what you've said that I'd like to respond to. I mean, I'll be talking about Bruya for much longer, but um, I just want to, you note again that the Korban Pesach and its uniqueness, um, and I think that at least bring, coming back to the first part of the daf, I, I think one of the things that struck me here is 
the obligation, <coughs> excuse me, the obligation of the korban on on people, on the group, but also that there's an obligation on everybody who's eligible to eat from the Korban Pesach. I feel like all other Korbanot, I have to think about whether this is really true, the the nature of the obligations to bring a, any kind of Korban that is not a Chatat, right, or a Chatat and Asham, these are the, you know, the guilt offerings or the sin offerings, those, fine, those are specific to the person, the individual who needs to, who needs to atone or whatever, right? But in terms of a shlamim, does an individual have an obligation to bring a shlamim? Or is it simply what is offered in the Beit HaMikdash and wherever you are, right? Then then it doesn't, not that it doesn't apply to you, but it's it's not the same thing of every single person must have a shlamim or they haven't fulfilled their obligation of the, of the day, right? I feel like you want to have a shlamim because it's a nice thing to offer to Hashem and you make your way to Yerushalayim and you make your pilgrimage and, and that's exactly the point. But I'm not... I, Obviously, we'll need to delve into this further, but I think that this this exact discussion that you know I just addressed at the beginning part of the daf in terms of whether it's whether we're talking about the people at the at the you know participating versus, for example, the tomb of the korban, and it just struck me again that we're talking about people who have to be there eating of the korban, and I think that this is a, one of the main you know quote unquote unique factors about the korban pesach. Um, which I need to explore further, obviously. You know, I don't mean to be fumfering around here. I'm just trying to, to, as we say, to suss out, you know, what's going on here in terms of its uniqueness, right? Other korbanot um, are much narrower in scope, right? Whereas the korban Pesach, not one korban, one animal, but the phenomenon of an obligation of the korban Pesach upon everybody, uh, except for those who are ineligible because they are, for example, tame or not circumcised. I think this is exactly part of what makes what makes the whole thing unique. Um, let's keep an eye on this. Yes, Anne, I think that's really a great point. And, you know, I know I read for a very, very long time, but this was also a great passage because it had a great story in it, but also was very relevant to many of the issues that we've been talking about on these DAPIM. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbanit Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this story and Bury is mentioned on this page and also some of the issues of Lishma v'Shalol Lishmo or L'Ochlav v'Shalol L'Ochlav on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 